All right, I'm going to just say this so that I am put at ease. We may go a little over this morning. Okay, there was a lot of announcement giving. It's not my fault. Okay. There's a lot of announcement giving, and I'm just looking at the clock, and we may go a little over this morning, and it's going to be wonderful, and that helps me to breathe a little easier. Well, I was fresh out of high school, attending Sierra College, majoring at the time in communication studies, though I really had no idea where that would lead. The class, if I remember correctly, was um, Fundamentals of Public Speaking. And the assignment was to deliver a persuasive speech. Just a few years old, in the Lord, inexperienced, but eager, I decided to speak about faith in Jesus Christ. With C.S. Lewis as my guide, I attempted to persuade my class to decision concerning Jesus, urging them to choose between one of the only four options available. Either Jesus uh, is a legend or a liar, or a lunatic, or He is the Lord of all, before whom every knee will one day bow. Well, as you might imagine, the reaction was mixed. Some responded inquisitively. Some were very agitated, even angry, and still others couldn't care less. But for me, it was a defining moment. And when John writes in chapter 7 that Jesus stood and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He is describing a defining moment that met mixed reaction. This is one of the great promises in the Bible, one of the great invitations to new life in Christ. For in that moment, our Savior offered Himself as the water that would quench the deepest thirst of the human soul. The thirst, for, the thirst of salvation from sin and satisfaction in God. How did the people respond to the call of Christ that day? And how does this account inform our response today? These are the questions before us this morning. And so let us consider the response of the crowd. That's verses 40 through 44. The response of the officers, verses 45 and 46. And then the response of the Pharisees, verses 47 through 52. And along the way, and near the end, we'll consider how to respond today. The crowd's response is characterized by division. Some believe Jesus was a prophet. Some uh, took Him to be the Christ or Messiah. And still others refused Him as Messiah. Some said Jesus was the one they called the prophet. The same prophet Moses mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, 
verses 15 through 18. Uh, of course, Moses didn't know uh, to whom he was referring exactly, but as Acts chapter 3 makes clear, Moses was speaking about Jesus. He was speaking about the coming Messiah who God would raise to lead his people. But the people here misunderstood this. They expected a prophet, the prophet, who would precede the Messiah, who'd serve as forerunner to the Messiah. So they, so they accepted, see, they accepted Jesus as a holy man, a good man, even a godly man, someone who pointed to the Messiah, but not the Messiah himself. Though they recognized the uniqueness of Christ, even that he was sent by God, they would not accept the full import of his claims. That Jesus came from God and was God and therefore makes God known. And the same response occurs today, does it not? Many people are willing to acknowledge Jesus as a great man When considering his teachings and miracles, many take Jesus to be even a godly man. They look to Jesus for an inspirational quote. They want their children to learn about Jesus. They they generally admire Jesus, but like these folks, they stop short. They stop short of acknowledging who He truly is. They stop short of accepting Him in His divine fullness. Well, others said Jesus was the Christ. Verse 41. On the one hand, they acknowledge that Jesus is who He claimed to be, and maybe even some believed in Him and received Him as Messiah. John doesn't tell us that. But on the other hand, as we've seen throughout this chapter, affirming Christ's claims is not the same as answering Christ's call. There's a difference between believing truths about Jesus and believing in Jesus. So we're reminded yet again of the nature of true and saving faith, that it's not enough to merely affirm Jesus as the Christ. We must act upon that belief by accepting Jesus ourselves. You must receive Jesus as your Savior the one God provides for you and your salvation. So some thought Jesus to be a good and godly man. Others uh, affirmed His claim to be the Christ. And still others refused Jesus as the Christ, saying in verses 41 and 42, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? the village where David was. Ironically, they acknowledge the prophecy of Christ's birth, but fail to see that Jesus, in fact, fulfills that very same prophecy. They're correct in that Jesus grew up in Nazareth of Galilee, 
But had they looked further, they would have learned that Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem, exactly as foretold. Essentially, they dismissed the Lord because they didn't examine all the facts. And I recently read a good example of this. In April's issue of Christianity Today, which I just read this week, which tells you how far behind I am on my reading. But in April's issue of Christianity Today, Michael Bird, noted scholar, author, and apologist, traces his conversion from atheism to faith in Christ. He's writing, the article is a response to Bart Ehrman. If that name is familiar to any of you, he's a well-known agnostic who repeatedly attacks the claims of Christ. But as Bird points out, Ehrman draws conclusions about Jesus without examining all the facts. And so listen to Bird's own testimony of faith. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth hearing. He says, I grew up in a secular home in suburban Australia where religion was categorically rejected. It was seen as a crutch and people of faith were derided as morally deviant hypocrites. Rates for church attendance in Australia are some of the lowest in the Western world and the country's political leaders feel no need to feign religious devotion. In fact, they think it's better to avoid religion altogether. As a teenager, he says, I wrote poetry mocking God. My mother threw enough profanity at religious door knockers to make even a sailor blush. Many years later, however, I began to read the New Testament for myself. And the Jesus I encountered there was far different from the deluded, radical, even mythical character described to me. This Jesus, the Jesus of history, was real. He touched upon things that cut close to my heart, especially as I pondered the meaning of human existence. I was struck by the early church's testimony to Jesus that in Christ's death, God has vanquished evil and by His resurrection, He has brought life and hope to all. When I crossed from unbelief to belief, all the pieces suddenly began to fit together. I had always felt a strange unease about my unbelief. I had an acute suspicion that there might be something more, something transcendent, but I also knew that, it, that I was told not to think that. Faith grew from seeds of doubt. And I came upon a whole new world that for the first time actually made sense to me. So to this day, I do not find faith stifling or constricting as Ehrman suggests. Rather, faith has been liberating and transformative for me. It has opened a constellation of meaning, beauty, hope, and life that I had been indoctrinated to deny. And so began a lifelong quest to know, study, and teach about the One whom Christians call Lord. Bird's testimony is like so many others. 
and that faith grows when it's fixed upon Jesus Christ. And we begin to explore Jesus and listen to Jesus and learn from Jesus ourselves. That by the presence and power of the Spirit of God, we actually find, like Him, that our faith may grow even from seeds of doubt. His point, a point illustrated here in John 7 by those who dismissed Jesus because of limited knowledge is to not allow your preconceptions to keep you from the truth of Jesus Christ. Essentially, that's what they were doing, right? Allowing their preconceptions to keep them from the truth of the Lord. So the crowd is divided. John says in verse 43, simply there was division among the people over Jesus. We saw it in verse 12, again in verses 30 and 31, and here again in this passage. And the same division exists today. If you've followed Jesus for any length of time, and you've no doubt experienced this yourself, whether at school or at work or even with members of your own family, isn't it true that you can talk about all sorts of things? Talk about current events or sports or movies or the weather But mention Jesus Christ and the difference He's made in your life or the difference He can make in theirs and sides are drawn. Some take Him to be a good man. Others may go a step further and affirm Him as the Savior and still others get angry and they refuse Him as if wanting to arrest Him like verse 44 and dispose of Him altogether. Well, whereas the crowd's reaction is marked by division, the officer's response, notice, is one of amazement. They'd been sent to arrest Jesus, but return empty-handed. Why did you not bring Him? The Pharisees or the authorities asked, to which they reply, no one ever spoke like this man. They are amazed by what Christ said and how He spoke. You may remember in verse 16, Jesus said, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. And with this, He's stressing the fact that His words are the very words of God. In other words, anyone who heard Jesus heard God. No wonder the officers were amazed. No wonder Christ's words have made such an impact ever since on people from all walks of life, in places all over the world, in every generation from His day to our day, no wonder Jesus' words still impact and radically transform people today. Some 2,000 plus years later, they are unlike any other because they are the very words of God. Jesus spoke with such conviction Right? Because they're not only amazed by, by what he said, but by how he spoke. Well, he spoke with such conviction, such determination, such courage. It's never easy to stand before a crowd, much less a divided and angry crowd. And then he spoke with such honesty, unafraid to teach 
even hard truths so as to reveal our true need. And He spoke with such love and genuine concern. Listen, even as His enemies closed in around Him, He invited even them to come and drink and quench their soul's thirst. Of course the officers marveled. And given the Pharisees' response in verses 47 and 48, have you also been deceived? Have any of us believed? It appears that perhaps at least some of them, some of these officers began to believe in Jesus. Though they came to arrest Him, He arrested them. The crowd responds one way, the officers another. The officers another. So what about the Pharisees? Well, their reaction to Jesus is one of defiance. They're entrenched in their opposition to Him and they refuse even the possibility of faith. Thus they oppose Jesus pridefully and willingly. The Pharisees are prideful. Listen to what they say in, in, in 47 and 48 and 49. The, the officers return amazed by Jesus and the Pharisees retort, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in this Jesus? But this crowd, this crowd, these people, they don't know the law, they're accursed. So they fault the officers by accusing them of being naive, of being deceived, and they mock, and they curse the crowd by claiming that those people don't know anything. They puff themselves up and put others down. They are in the know, they assume, while others clearly aren't. They're better than everyone else. They're more educated and theologically trained. They, they and they alone set the standard. They are the standard, they think, by which true faith is measured. And yet no sooner had they scorned the crowd for being ignorant of the law, supposedly, one of their very own cautions them against ignoring the law themselves. Nicodemus steps forward to say, oh, now wait a minute. Hold on a sec. Does not our law, or, or does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So we remember from chapter 3 that Nicodemus had gone to meet Jesus privately. Nicodemus was interested in Jesus, wanted to learn from Jesus. And here in chapter 7, he urges his fellow Pharisees to likewise listen to and learn from Jesus. But in their pride, they don't want to learn. 
So they turn against Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. One moment they curse the crowd for not knowing the law, then they skirt the law themselves. As if to say, shut up, Nicodemus. Watch yourself. We don't need you flaunting the law. Are you with him or with us? Our minds are made up. And so they oppose Jesus pridefully and willingly. Have you ever noticed that many who oppose Jesus simply won't listen to reason? Not all the time. Not every person. But sometimes. Their minds are made up and they're, they're simply, there's no hope of a conversation. They exalt themselves and put others down in willful deviance of truth. Many, many, not all, but many who reject Christianity don't even know what they're rejecting, really. You may talk with someone about the Christian faith and find that though they have very strong assertions and though they present themselves as experts on Christianity, they're, they are in actuality ignorant of that which they claim to reject. They claim to know the Bible, for instance, but they've never read the Bible. As Michael Byrd suggested about Bart Ehrman, they claim to know everything about Jesus, but have never truly considered the validity of his claims themselves. So here the Pharisees reject Jesus, I think, because they wanted to. They already hated him. Already they wanted to, to kill him, right? We learned that right from the first verse of the chapter. So it's really no surprise that as we get to the chapter's end to find that their opposition to Jesus remains still prideful, still willful. So the crowd is divided, the officers are amazed, and the Pharisees are defiant. What does this say to us? How might this apply? Number one, it warns against pride. Those in the crowd and nearly all of the Pharisees thought they knew more about Jesus than Jesus. The Pharisees considered themselves above the crowd, even above Christ, and therefore refused Christ. And listen, these were religious people. Here we have scores of religious people celebrating a religious feast while dismissing the one to whom the feast pointed. So let not your hearts be hardened, the Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let us therefore humble ourselves. Let us respond to Christ's call in humility, not divided, 
not merely amazed, definitely not defiant, but in humility, we want to listen to and learn from Jesus who offers living water to any who thirst. It warns against pride. Number two, it urges departure from fickle crowds. It urges departure from fickle crowds. You don't need me to tell you that people are fickle. We are fickle sometimes. And in our culture, unbelief is trendy. And religion is passé. Therefore, to stand for Christ means to stop chasing the trends. To trust Christ is to be confident in Him, not in popular opinion. The cultural changes facing us today demand that we become great drinkers of the water that only Christ gives and thereby depart from fickle crowds so that we can go out into our world as salt and light so that rivers of living water will flow out from our hearts and spill onto the lives of those around us. Depart. I think this passage urges us to depart from fickle crowds. Number three, it rouses our evangelism. This passage makes clear that we cannot determine people's response to Jesus. We cannot. We cannot change their heart. Our part is to present the truth of Christ and leave the results to God. Listen, even when Jesus stood before the people and invited them Himself, some refused. So why would we expect anything different? But some believed. Some in that crowd believed in Him. They heard His voice and they answered His call and found life in His name. And some, like His brothers for instance, would eventually come to believe. His brothers didn't believe Him yet. We saw that in verse 5, but eventually they did. According to Matthew 13, Jesus had four half-brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. James became a pillar and leader of the early church in Jerusalem. Early church history tells us that Simon likewise became a devoted servant of the Lord. Judas, or Jude, wrote the epistle of Jude. Although his brothers didn't yet believe in Christ, in the context of John chapter 7, they came to believe. Eventually, this should encourage us. This chapter rouses our efforts in evangelism. Let us share Christ with others, knowing that while some may refuse, some won't. 
Others will believe, even if it takes time, even when our role is simply to till the soil and sow the seed and water the soil, the seed itself will sprout in due time. It warns against pride. It urges departure from fickle crowds. It rouses our, it rouses our evangelism. And finally, I think it commends unity in the church. Here's, here's why I say this. Here in this chapter, we see how Christ brings division in terms of how people respond to Him. But we in the church must also see that Jesus causes the greatest, most profound unity imaginable. The unity of believers. Jesus unites people from different races, different walks of life, Different backgrounds, people of all ages, all over the world, throughout history, in that when you place your trust in Him, He places you in the church. It's His church, meaning that our individual faith not only unites us to Him, but also to one another. And so we think, I think we have opportunity, even in this chapter, to value and celebrate and protect and preserve unity in the church. For it's a gift from God Himself. Mixed reaction. Jesus was met with mixed reaction. And He still is. But at the end of the day, It's not as much about how others respond to Christ, but about how you respond. And so how do you respond this morning? Respond in humility and receive grace. Respond by faith and have the thirst of your soul quenched. Respond by sharing this living water with those around you. And in a day when division is so easy to find, when the enemy is looking for every opportunity to tear apart what God has joined, respond by celebrating and preserving unity in the church. To God be the glory, right? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. Thank You for ministering to us and speaking to us. And we trust and pray that You will minister and speak to us still. Apply these truths to our lives and make us to be 
followers of Jesus Christ each and every day. We pray this in His name. Amen.